Here's what's coming up today on the Prove Me Wrong podcast. You know, we think of ghosts as being these frightening, terrifying things, but um, if you look at some of the research out there, the long-term effects are actually it, it improves person's um, quality of life by having a ghostly encounter. Hmm. Uh, it actually provides some sort of comfort. Welcome back, everyone, to another edition of the Prove Me Wrong podcast, paranormal episode. I am your host, Pete Lieb, and I'm glad you're all on board. Usually on the paranormal episodes, we take the standpoint of the true believer. You know, we read and react to listener stories, and we've even shared some of our own. Today, we're going to go off script maybe just a bit and take a look at some alternate theories to the typical paranormal experience. Maybe uh, what is a ghost? What constitutes a ghost sighting? How does the environment or your mental or emotional state dictate your perceptions? And to help that, I've been very fortunate. I am alone in the studio, but I have some help on the line. And I'm very fortunate today to have expert researcher and author of the book, The Ghost Stories, The New Perspectives on the Origins of Paranormal Experiences, Mr. Brandon Masulo. Welcome, Brandon. Well, thanks for having me. Great to be here. So a short bio on you, Brandon. Brandon is a clinical therapist, author, and parapsychologist residing in Northeast Ohio. He has graduate degrees in clinical counseling from the University of Toledo and psychological research methods from the University of Edinburgh in Scotland. His research in the University of Edinburgh centered on EMFs, environmental sensitivity, and ghostly encounters. Brandon has been fascinated by paranormal phenomena for 20 years and has been a participant in a featured speaker in numerous paranormal forums and events, including Parapsychological Association's 60th anniversary celebration. And his research has been cited in parapsychological journals, newspaper articles, and mainstream books. Brandon's first book, again, The Ghost Stories, New Perspectives of the Origins of Paranormal Experience, combines the thrill of reading real-life ghost encounters with the satisfaction of some new perspectives and insights into the cause of these thrilling encounters. If you want to find out more, please visit Brandon's website, hauntedtheories.com, for more information. So, whew, word parapsychological is, is fun. Difficult. <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to, to say. Um, so yeah, Br- it doesn't roll off the tongue. Oh, no doubt. So, Brandon, if, if you don't mind, could you give us just a moment and tell us a little bit about yourself and what got you interested in researching the paranormal to begin with? Uh, sure, yeah. I mean, the bio told you probably as, as depth, in depth as I can probably go. But, uh, yeah, I have uh, graduate degrees in uh, psychological research methods, and I have uh, uh, degrees in uh, clinical counseling as well. Um, I studied uh, basically research methods over at the University of Edinburgh in Scotland for a year, mm-hmm. uh, but I had a specialization in parapsychology. So my research was done on a, uh, a topic related to parapsychology, which is environmental sensitivity and paranormal experiences. Kind of had to deal with a haunted location uh, and the reason why some people might be more prone to having ghostly encounters. So uh, what got me into the paranormal um, you know, I always battle with that because it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly when that happened. Uh, I know it was probably when I was a teenager. We were having a, <clears throat> a sleepover one time and mm-hmm. over my friend's house, and he lived next to a, a cemetery. And supposedly his the basement where we were at was supposedly haunted. And I remember one of my friends woke up and said that he saw a, like a ghost, like a Victorian-era ghost, walk across the room. 
And it was kind of fascinating because, you know, I was in the room. Uh, I didn't see it, but I was in the room. And then the conversation went to, you know, what are ghosts? What causes ghosts in the whole nine yards? And then I didn't know the answers to that, and that kind of bothered me. So I picked up all kinds of books on parapsychology, mm-hmm. which parapsychology is basically the study of paranormal phenomenon. Um, it's an academic it's academic, so it's parapsychology is when it comes there's the the broad term or the branch of psychology, and then under psychology, there's neuropsychology, clinical psychology, health psychology, social psychology, and then parapsychology. And parapsychology, like I said, basically deals with paranormal phenomenon. It has to do with um, telepathy. It has to do with uh, psychokinesis, ESP, reincarnation, consciousness, um, remote viewing, precognition, and also apparitions or the survival hypothesis, what happens after we die. Uh, Not all parapsychologists are out there trying to prove the existence of these types of phenomenon, but rather they're running experiments and doing research to see if there is some sort of statistical evidence that these types of things exist. So I got interested in that after reading a lot of books, and then I ended up um, just applying to the University of Edinburgh, going overseas, studying it more in depth, then coming back home and doing clinical stuff, and then the book came out. So I, I didn't really have an experience when I was younger or anything like that that kind of got me into it. I was more fascinated with the research part of things, like studying ESP and telepathy and reincarnation, and then that piqued my interest, and then you know, here I am today. No doubt. Did did you do a lot of the research? Were you in Scotland while you were researching? Or did you come back to America for that? No, my um, kind of both. Um, the, the research I did was at a place called Mary King's Close in, in Edinburgh, which is Scotland. Uh, Mary King's Close is described as one of the most haunted locations in Scotland, which is um, a pretty easy or pretty hard thing to do because Scotland, everything's haunted. Exactly. Uh, <laughs> But uh, that's where my research was really at. I took like 250 participants through this haunted location, and they checked off when they had experiences, and that's where I wrote my uh, dissertation on. Um, So I did a bulk of it over there, and that's where you learn really. You get more in-depth, like um, you study underneath a parapsychologist. You learn more about the field. You're doing research. You're reading journal articles. So you get a better idea of what's going on. Um, And then uh, after that, I came home. And I started noticing a lot of kind of similarities between experiences doing my clinical work, the face-to-face counseling part of things and, mm-hmm. and assessment. And that's really the, the end part of the book, which went into that. So, you know, my day job is more clinical psychology, if you want to think about it like that. Um, research is what I did overseas, but it's not really what I do on a day-to-day basis now. And And you might have touched on this a bit, but when, so when you were doing the research and you were saying you're in one of the, one of the more uh, allegedly haunted places in Scotland, so were you actually conducting a, uh, an experiment there while you were there, or was it more just you were yeah. gathering information, yeah, and you saw nothing while no, you were I, there? No, it was all happening while I was there. So we had five days, uh-huh. so I was in Scotland for a little over a year, but we had five days to do the experiment, and basically... Um, we would run, I don't know how many groups of people we ran, but overall 250 participants went through this haunted location. Oh, okay. So I was there in the beginning to talk about what, you know, before you have, you have people have to sign agreements and fill out um, questionnaires and, and things like that. And I would have to take baseline readings because uh, we did some parts of the, of the research was on EMFs. 
So I had to do baseline readings at Mary King's Close um, a week before and then every morning before people went through the haunted location. So, uh, yeah, I was physically there in Scotland at Mary King's Close doing that, um, which was really fun and really exciting. And I got to walk around Mary King's Close by myself, which not a lot of people get to do because it's kind of blocked off. It's an underground city in Scotland. So Mm -hmm. that's where they um, it was so overcrowded in Edinburgh. Uh, and I can't remember the dates, if it was the 1600s, probably. But um, it was so overcrowded up top that people were moving underground, like living in the sewers, if you want to think about it like that. They had businesses down there, and supposedly they walled people up down there during the plague. A lot of bad things happened down there. Uh, but now it's all sort of closed off, and they do tours through it. But I got they let me go down and just walk around through the building by myself, so which was really fun. Um, and cool experience to just be alone in a in a place with so much history like that. No doubt that that's actually pretty amazing. Yeah. How does your background in in uh, as a clinical therapist? How does that play into your effectiveness as a parapsychology researcher? Um, well, I I believe I kind of have a, a unique viewpoint to research in the ghost, uh, mainly because of my education and experience mm-hmm. in both clinical and research psychology. You know, my undergrad is in psychology. My graduates clinical counseling. Uh, I have 14 years um, of clinical experience working in the mental health field. Uh, And then I also have this research part of things where I've conducted experiments and I've got, um, you know, a little bit of background in that. You know, so as part of my job when I was working in a hospital here in the the Ohio area, was doing consults uh, in the ER and on medical floors, like psychiatric mental health consults. Mm -hmm. And um, I did that for seven years. I saw nearly 5,000 patients, uh, patients in crisis mostly. And then <clears throat> as I'm doing the clinical stuff, my research brain is still going on, and I'm talking to family and, and the patients. And when I was doing this and reading research, and I, I kind of started making some connections, and um, that's when I started developing theories. And So my theories are a mix of psychological and a mix of, sort of environmental and um, biological. It's a mixture of all these things together. So through the clinical interviews, through the research, through the eyewitness accounts, it all came together for me. So if I didn't have this clinical background, I would not have been speaking to people who had experiences um, on a fairly consistent basis, which I think was very helpful in me kind of getting to understand a little bit more about the experiences. And I want to be clear that you know, I, when people think I'm a counselor, I only talk to crazy people, but that's not really right. how it works. You know, as far as people who seek counseling, it could be from physicians to lawyers to celebrities to politicians to single moms to, um, you know, factory workers to, you, you know, everyone has counseling. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's not just crazy people. And a lot of these people were having experiences. So. Did, did you find that? maybe at least initially in the some of these research discussions that you were maybe pre-diagnosing someone's mental state or does that color the outcome of your investigation at all how do you separate kind of the if you're talking to someone they're bringing you a story do you even try to separate uh, a diagnosis while you're talking well i think it's it's important to rule out any type of psychosis mm-hmm. uh, any sort of schizophrenia schizotypal personality disorder schizoaffective disorder you know mania um, substance abuse um, you know, those types of things, it's important to rule those out whenever you're sort of um, 
with a person. Now, it's tough to do just, you know, if I'm at a conference or something and somebody walks up to my table and tells me an experience, it's tough to do that. Um, but, you know, it's an important part of it. Right. Some people just, um, there's a lot that goes into an experience, and, and sometimes it could just be misinterpreting what's happening around you. It could be reality testing deficits. It could be, um, you, you know, there could be a numerous things that happen. But my perspective is just taking things as, you know, it's not do I believe them or do I believe ghosts exist, but do people experience apparitions? Mm-hmm. And, and the answer to that is yes, people do experience apparitions. So that's the starting point to everything. There's no doubt among skeptics, among believers, among anybody from walks of life that there are millions of people who experience ghostly encounters. Now, are you supposed to break it down and find the ultimate cause for it? I don't know. But I think, at least from my viewpoint with psychology, is we deal with the experience. You know, if someone comes up to me and says they're depressed, I don't hammer them away trying to figure out if they're lying to me or not. I say, okay, you're saying you're depressed. Let's look at some of the triggers for that. Let's look at what we can do treatment-wise, and let's look how we can move forward with that. I'm not in their, in their face going, I don't believe depression exists. or You know, because it's what they're experiencing. It's their subjective views of something. Yeah, so, I mean, you did answer at least one of my, one of my later questions, was that you do believe that people do see apparitions. Yeah, you can't argue that. So in your book, you have collected... Uh, several examples of encounters. Are there any that stand out to you that were particularly, you know, frightening or believable? Uh, yeah, there was a lot of them did stand out to me. Um, it's hard for me to pick a favorite. They're like my kids. Mm-hmm. You no, know? <laughs> you know? but the one that that I have people tell me is sort of one that um, sticks out to them is, and I'll I'll I'll, I'll read it to you. Sure. Um, here, because I have it in front of me, but. Um, This is from a gentleman whose wife just passed away. My wife had passed away unexpectedly over the summer. While it's been difficult, I've managed to care for the house myself. As Halloween approached, I was putting up decorations as the kids in the neighborhood love trick-or-treating. My wife and I bought a plastic pumpkin together when we first got married 20 years ago. We had placed this pumpkin in our window every Halloween. I searched the house for days looking for that pumpkin until I finally gave up. A few days after giving up, I was walking down the staircase and was shocked to see my wife standing at the bottom. She smiled and whispered, check behind the workbench, and then vanished. I began to weep uncontrollably and then rushed out to the garage. A huge smile came across my face as the plastic pumpkin was lying behind the workbench. It must have fallen off the top, it must have fallen off the top shelf. So what's great is, in, in this type of haunting, the, the ghost, in a way, has consciousness. It's mm-hmm. aware of its surroundings interacting it's giving information you know this 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 is fascinating stuff um they sometimes call these intelligent or active hauntings and that's when the ghost is sort of interacting with the environment right furniture giving information so this is a great example of one of those um i don't know life-changing experiences that happen well yeah and more than that brandon this is this kind of speaks to what most people who believe in ghosts want to believe they want to believe that their loved ones are still looking down on them, are still paying attention to what they're doing, and can still provide guidance or support when necessary, right? I mean, I think that's what a lot of people want to believe and do believe, and that's why they believe in, in ghosts. Yeah, there's a sense of comfort to that. Absolutely. That you're not alone. People are guiding you or people have your back in a way, um, and they're there to help you. So, yeah, I, I would agree with that. That's, that's 
primarily a basis for why a lot of people do believe in, in ghostly encounters. So you were saying that a lot through a lot of the research, you did a lot of study on environmental, you know, maybe energy, EMF, those type of different forces that may not be typical in what people, what normal, uh, the layperson would think is a ghost encounter. Can you give me a little bit more information on maybe some of the impacts of those things on the human body? Well, you know, I think it's a, it's a hard question to answer in yeah. a short period of time, but I will give it a heck of a shot. I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot happening with ourselves, all right? Um, when we enter a room, we enter the room with a collection of electricity, bioenergetics, um, senses, magnetic fields, uh, and everyone's is sort of a little bit different. You know, when I walk into a room, my perception and my senses of that room are different than yours. So we come mm -hmm. with a collection of all these different things. Now, sometimes when we think about, you know, so that so the environment is a is a huge part of how we experience the world. Um, when it comes to like psychology or emotions, a lot of people think emotions are just sort of things that happen to us. But there is a lot of research out there that suggests that emotions aren't just sort of located inside our head. You know, when we feel anxiety, they're throughout our whole body. Depression is throughout the whole body. Stress we feel throughout the whole body. So I think emotions impact us a lot more than we, we think as well. Um, and I think to some degree, because we, as humans, we're, electricity is sort of inside us, but mm -hmm. it also is outside us. So magnetic fields uh, sort of permeate outside of our heads and brains and arms and, and all this stuff. So if, if, our, if these sort of fields extend out into the environment, once they hit the environment, they're capable of going all over the world, really. So we are, in a sense, connected to the, the world around us, too. So emotions impact us internally, and that seeps out externally, and externally that links us all throughout the whole world to everyone around us in a way. So I think paranormal experiences kind of start internally mm -hmm. and then sort of go externally. And then once it's out into the world, um, all kinds of stuff can really happen from telepathy um, to, you know, I mean, mainly telepathy is one of my theories and thoughts on this. But if we think about like a normal telepathy example, you have, let's say you have a person in Ohio, a mother in Ohio who's uh, at home maybe writing a letter to her daughter in college in Colorado. As she's writing the letter, her daughter in Colorado gets a severe acid burn while she's in um, chemistry class, hmm. right? Okay. So what, what happens is the, the daughter gets this burn, and then all of a sudden at the same exact time, the mom feels a burn in their right arm right where the, the daughter got burned, right? We've heard stories about these types of things when people know what's going on with a relative across town. Um, so what happens is some sort of trauma happens to this daughter in Colorado, and it sort of messes with them internally, and then somehow that internal messing with comes out into the environment, shoots in the environment, and then with all the millions and billions of people in the world, it resonates with her mom in Ohio. It enters her mom somehow and then comes up in the same symptoms that the daughter had states or thousands of miles away. So that's sort of your entanglement or your telepathy part of things. Uh, Let me ask you why this. That happens, how that happens, we don't know. Let me ask you this, Brandon. What are your thoughts on um, astral projection? And, and I only ask you that because I've mentioned this before in a previous podcast. I have a daughter 
um, who's almost 17 now, when she was a child, there were probably three years of time there where, uh, I don't know if you have children, but when you wake up in the middle of the night, you know when your child's in the room and they're, they're not feeling well or whatever. There were, there's probably a three-year period where I woke up six, seven times a year and I knew that she was in the room. And I would, to the point where I would, you know, kind of through sleepy eyes say, yeah, Lauren, what do you want? And then I'd finally open my eyes fully and she wasn't there. And I would have just discounted it completely and blamed it as my overactive ma- imagination. But my wife, she was, would sleep in a different room and she would feel the exact same phenomena. I don't know if you've done yep. anything, any kind of research on that or how that might be true or, or false or what am I interpreting? Um, they, they've done, even as far as back as the 1800s, that was the Society for Psychical Research. Some of their first research attempts was trying to project themselves, uh, to another participant miles or hundreds of miles away. Um, so in a way, and, and it worked sometimes, mm-hmm. um, it would sort of project themselves into the room where this other person was. Um, usually when they were sleeping or somewhere around there. So it's not that unheard of or uncommon. Um, the question is, what do you define that as? Uh, you know, some people might define that as sort of telepathy, which is communication at a distance. You know, telepathy is not just reading somebody's mind. Mm-hmm. A lot of times telepathy is um, visual, emotional feelings, uh, tactile stuff, auditory stuff, um, you know, it's just this ability to sort of communicate, not by normal means. Um, astral projection sort of has to do with an out-of-body experience, like one's, I don't know what you would, astral body travels to another location or something like that. Um, it, it, defining what exactly is is challenging. I would probably say that's more telepathic. It depends on huh. what was happening with your daughter. Was she in a crisis? Was she trying to do this? I mean, do you know what she was doing at that time? Well, you know, she was a five-year-old girl. Every day was a crisis. So it's hard to tell specifically. But that could just simply mean that she really wanted to see her mom and dad. It could be. But I just know it was a weird phenomenon, and it did not happen with my son. It was really only her, and she's always really had— you know, you know, there are certain people that just have a force of will about them, right? And you and you meet them, and they just seem—you just feel it coming off of them. And she was yeah, always kind yeah. of that way. And so it was just interesting. And we did ask her one time, you know, do you have dreams while you're asleep or whatever? And she says, well, yeah, but they're not my dreams. And we're like, what do you mean they're not your dreams? She's like, well, my dream, I'm a boy, and I'm and the people speak funny. And so it was really weird. Kids say really weird stuff, right, Brandon? So it's <laughs> <laughs> it's it's hard to, to take what a child says at face value um, because they are so young and, and really haven't had the experience to kind of understand what, what's going on with them. But it, it was definitely interesting. Yeah, and I, and I encourage people because a lot of times people come up with these great experiences. Um, but I always say, you know, as time goes on in the future, make sure you write down some things. Like, how are you feeling that day? What was different that day? Mm-hmm. Uh, if it was like your daughter... Um, ask her in the morning if she thought about coming to see you. Um, you know, what was different about that day or that night? So in other words, you know, you, you sleep in your room 365 days a year. Right. Why that night did it happen? So if you find these sort of variables and you can write down and uh, get as much information about that one occurrence as you can, it becomes easier to sort of maybe pick apart the trigger to it. 
that's the challenging part with paranormal experiences or studying the paranormal. Uh, everything is episodic. It's it's erratic. It's random. It's not repeatable at will, mm-hmm. which is everything the scientific method hates. If I wanted to study the composites the, of a piece of wood, I can chop it in half, put it in a machine, put it under a microscope. I know it's going to be there. It's not going to change overnight. Um, but with these paranormal experiences, they're, they're just so fleeting that um, the best thing people can do is write down all these specifics about an experience. And then if you do that enough and you have enough experiences, you'll start to find some things that correlate, some things that are similar, times of day. Mm-hmm. You know, all this stuff comes together, and then you have a better clue of what's going on rather than just an experience. Get some of the background stuff associated with it. I think we all know that person. We all know that person who always it seems to have all of these experiences, and they have all these different stories that they can tell you. And then you have individuals who've never seen anything, never felt anything. Uh, and so in your book, you discuss people who seem to be more prone to having those ghostly encounters. Can you kind of go into maybe some of the reasons for that? Is there something special about those people? Yeah. Um, and there are uh, there is a, pop, a subset of the population that does seem to have more paranormal experiences than the general population. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that doesn't really have to do anything with you know, this mysterious or controversial psychic ability or sensitivity. I think it has to do something with something as simple and concrete as the ability to, uh, the ability to taste, touch, and smell. And, and what I'm talking about is something called environmental sensitivity. Now, environmental sensitivity is, is not psychic sensitivity. It's something completely different. Those who are psychically sensitive are like John Edwards and Chip Coffee and all of them. Environmental sensitivity is simply affected by the surrounding environment to a higher degree than the normal population. So if you think about it like this, and we talked briefly about this, as humans, we're sort of affected and react to the environment in different ways. Now, it's, it's been suggested in some prior research that the physical environment affects certain people more than others. And usually these types of people um, commonly have longstanding allergies, chronic pain, fatigue, migraines, fibromyalgia, sensitivity to light, sounds, electricity, and smells. Um, You know, if I walk into a room and I sit down, nothing really impacts me at all. Everything's fine. Another person could walk in that same room, sit in the same chair, and they might be overwhelmed with the guy next to them's cologne to the point where their eyes water and they start sneezing. The fluorescent lighting may cause them to have headaches. The seat they're sitting on, which was clean with bleach, may start to give them a rash. Um, so the, the, the people sometimes are really sensitive to the things that happen around them. Um, and I found, and not I found, but previous research said those who are environmentally sensitive of that population, 70% have had a paranormal experience, hmm. which is a huge, huge number. Um, so really we start to look at why do they have more experiences than everyone else. And there's been a lot of research on that by a guy named Michael Jower. He's the person that's one of the most prominent researchers in that area. Um, but, you know, if, if you think about it like this, everyone, you know, all radios have the same basic equipment mm-hmm. to tune in the radio waves. Some are just more refined, sophisticated, and able to pick up stations more clearly from farther away. These environmentally sensitive people have superior sort of biological radars. They're better at detecting and gathering information from the environment. And perhaps if paranormal phenomena occur in the environment and it involve our senses, 
maybe those who are more sensitive to the environment are more prone to the experiences. So this is where we have this, you know, this general population that has this ability to tru- truly experience paranormal phenomenon. It's it's more likely to happen to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean it can only happen to them, but their radios are more sophisticated and they're able to pick it up. So th- so that's you know they have a better antenna and biological radio than others in the environment. And paranormal stuff, if it happens in the environment, which it does, um, whether it's telepathy or ghosts or whatever, these people are more prone to be able to pick it up. So you mentioned um, you mentioned John Edward earlier. Do you believe in that type of interaction. It's just, I think a lot of the psychics nowadays have gotten a bad rap. You know, they, they've been kind of, uh, they walk through the crowd and they talk to people beforehand and they get a sense of who they are beforehand. And so they've kind of made them all seem like charlatans. And it's, do you believe that that kind of, uh, that power uh, does exist? Um, there's a, there's an article, uh, and I, I don't remember the name of it, but the person who wrote it, um, Jessica Utz, U-T-T-S. Mm-hmm. She was the president of the American, uh, I'm going to mess it up, the American Statistical Association. So she has a PhD and she's really in the statistics to the point where she became the president of the American Statistical Association. So that's, you know, that means they're in the, stat, in the statistics, right? Right. Uh, and during her presidential address, she mentioned um, psi abilities or psychic abilities. And she basically said, and, and wrote this in a paper saying, statistically, it's been proven beyond what other phenomenon have been proven with. It's just most people can't wrap their brains around how it works, why it works, when it works, or anything like that. So when these do, when they do these experiments and they do these meta-analysis, which they look at all the experiments that are ever done and they do statistics on that, statistically, tele- telepathic abilities or psychic abilities have been proven statistically. Um, now, if we get into to psychics and things like that, I don't think this stuff happens at will. I don't think it's something you just walk into a room and have abilities to do that. Mm-hmm. I think it's something that sort of is like, you know, we all have adrenaline, right? Adrenaline kicks in when we need it, right? Um, so if I'm a mom walking down the street and my son, if, you know, a car, my son gets hit by a car and goes underneath the car, um, on a random Tuesday, or on, I can, when this happens, I can run up and pick the car up and my kid could run out, right? That's my adrenaline pumping. Would I be able to run and pick up a car on a random Tuesday morning? No, probably not, because right. my adrenaline's not gone. But I think paranormal stuff happens similar to that. It, it's only really kicked in when we need it in crisis or trauma or something happening. So when the problem with a lot of these people is they may have some sort of ability, but when you try to do it on demand, I think you open yourself up to a lot of fraud and a lot of cold reading right. because there's a lot of expectations. So if you have a person in front of you that paid $100 to see you and you're not picking up on anything, do you think there's pressure to put on a show at that point? Oh, I mean, I, I see these people. Oh, I hear people on radio. You know, they'll come on on uh, Coast to Coast or something like that, and they'll do these online readings. and. You have to tell them your birthday, and how the heck do I know what's going on with you just from your birthday? That to me, it, you know, those are fascinating and cringeworthy to me all at the same time because I'm just waiting for them to say something that me to me seems pretty general, and then to have somebody say, "Oh yeah, absolutely," or "No, that that's not me." So it, it, yeah. I can c- completely believe, you know, just the amount of pressure of having to 
to perform on demand, you know, and, and be and that, dead on. Yeah, and, and that's that's the problem with it. When, when people are stressed or put on demand or made to be psychic, they fail miserably. Uh, when they're in a meditative state, when they're calm, um, the the number of hits goes up. You know, there was a research done by a neuropsychologist, Michael uh, Persinger, uh, out of Canada, who recently passed away. But he would he hooked up um, this psychic named Sean Harriman um, with an EEG, and then he was doing like readings of magnetic fields around their heads of him and a person that he was reading. And what they found out was that when he synchronized with the person he was reading, in other words, their EEG synchronized. Um, the magnetic fields around their heads were linked and synchronized. So entanglement happened and information was passed. So the accuracy of his readings or predictions or hits was really high when they were synchronized between their EEGs, but it decreased when they weren't. So again, it could happen, just looking at this study, but it's not something you can just turn on at will. So, you know, you watch these things like on Travel Channel when... It's, you know, Haunted Salem Live, which right. is one that I watched recently. So, you know, you, you fly in a psychic. Um, I don't can't remember who was on. I think it was Chip Coffee. And again, I don't know him. I've never done anything with him. But, you know, the lights come on and it's like, do your thing. You right, know? exactly. And now you're live in front of billion, millions of people. And so there's pressure to do that. So you may cold read. You may elaborate. You may do things that aren't. Uh, there for you just because listen they spent a lot of money on you being there other crap that happened you had talked also about having some measurables to phenomena and measure environmental impacts and things like that in your research and what you did for the book did you also go in and say okay here's the story and then here's the subset of other potential factors that this individual may not have even thought about at the time. You know, they did just go through a loss in, in the family. They just lost the, the big job or something else happened, something that might have affected them emotionally. Did you also record those as well and, or anything like that and measure it? Um, not, not for everyone. Uh, some cases I would write down what happened. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I would give, uh, would mix my, because I have two theories in the book. I would sort of go over my theory about how this might be happening. Um, And my theory takes into account a lot of, like I said, um, psychological, uh, bioenergetics, and environment, and then that equals a ghost encounter. So it's tough because, you know, a lot of the cases that I had, I didn't really have too, too much information. So it's maybe a paragraph or two. You know, it's it's not like I broke it down uh, like some of the books in the past in the 1800s did. But you get an idea of what's happening. And I think for my theories and my thoughts and kind of my viewpoints on things, I took kind of what I needed and put it in there. Uh, the thing about it is when you when you write a book, there's word limits. There's, you know, I, if I write a seven-page story about a ghostly experience, most people are going to get bored within the first five lines. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, yeah, no doubt. You, you can't write, uh, you know, detailed accounts and things like that. You have to be sort of con- as concise as you can be. Um, and, and I think that that's a little bit of a, like, you know, we talk about pressure with psychics, but this is idea of, you know, getting your information across is the first step. So the, the long answer is I shortened a lot of the experiences down into a mm-hmm. paragraph or two and then broke them down. So in your book, you do discuss the idea that consciousness may not be located inside of us, but rather based externally. Can you give me an idea of what, what you mean by that? It's actually not, it's not that actually new of an idea. 
a guy by the name of Rupert Sheldrake wrote a book about this back in the 80s. And Rupert Sheldrake, for some of your listeners, if you're ever interested in learning a lot more about consciousness and, and sort of paranormal phenomenon, pick up some of his books. He's, he's a well-known lecturer, mainly in the UK, but he challenges some, some mainstream ideas. But, you know, this, this notion that consciousness is sort of everywhere and not just inside us uh, or based on firing neurons in our brains, it's, it's not new. This belief, um, in fact, the belief of universal or collective consciousness is, is prominent in ancient philosophies, Buddhism, mm-hmm. uh, one of them. But consciousness is the state or quality of awareness. And it's been defined as sort of sentience, uh, awareness, subjective, subjectivity, uh, the ability to experience, those types of things. Um, now, it, the unconscious is part of the mind that's sort of inaccessible to the conscious mind. And mainstream science mainly ignores the notion that consciousness exists, out, exists outside of our brain. But there is emerging thought in, in neuroscience suggesting that it may not be an intrinsic property. Carl Jung was probably the first popular guy to really talk about this. He talked about how when we're born, we're not just a blank slate. We have this thing called um, the collective unconscious, which we all come from. Rupert Sheldrake came along a little bit later and said that memory is inherent in nature and that the brain is more of a tuning system than a memory storage system. Hmm. So basically what he was saying was if if we look at our TVs, right? So our TV, as it is right now, all the Netflix, all that information is not stored in your TV, is it? No, it's not. It's stored, <laughs> it's stored externally. Right. Right? Right. So what happens is your TV tunes into that and gets the information externally. Now, if I took a sledgehammer and broke some of your internal circuitry, would you be able to get that information from the outside? Maybe, maybe not. It may be a little distorted. So if part of our brain is messed up or traumatized, um, it could impact how that information is processed. Just like if you took a hammer to the back of your TV, the information from Netflix and Hulu and whatever else is out there may not get to it. But I think the, the one thing that actually, might be the one thing that gets me on that because I can get behind a lot of it, but then to think that there that I am floating around out there already, and it's just the fact that my particular brain tunes into that right frequency and, and uh, brings it in, I can get behind that until we start talking about then because I could buy another television and and still get Netflix. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> That's my only problem with it. When we crash the television, you're right, that one's broken, but I can get another one and still pull that up. If you bash me in the head... But again, you're you're defining reincarnation. Uh, Oh, there you go. Uh, Do you you believe in reincarnation? (laughs) Well, if we think about consciousness being external, this idea that once the TV goes, it can just go to another TV. Mm -hmm. Uh, That reincarnation is actually more popular than, than heaven and hell and things like that, as far as a religion worldwide. I mean number of people who are believers in reincarnation is, is huge. i got to be honest with you, I'm, I want to believe in a big way. I've said a lot of times that I get, I'm in, you know, I'm early 40s, and I get anxiety, almost borderline anxiety attacks, just thinking that, that I have that much time left, you know, and um, it, it kind of forces me, it pushes me to do things because of that, because of that fear of the time. So I'm, I'm right there with some of those people thinking, let there be something more. Let there, if, whether it be that reincarnation, and we try it again, or we keep going on, that is appealing to me. I'll be honest with you. Yeah, and I, I think if you look at some of the 
the University of Virginia, they have, uh, I think it's the Division of Perceptual Studies. Mm-hmm. There's a guy there, Dr. Jim Tucker, who does a lot of research on reincarnation. And a lot of the case studies that he has and talks about are very, very intriguing. And there's a lot of things um, that kind of point to this idea that it could be happening. So, you know, in theory, if if we look at ourselves and consciousness as not sort of, you know, the survival hypothesis basically says some part of us exists after we die, you know, our, mm-hmm. whether it's a soul, a spirit, consciousness, whatever. Our memories, our personalities, who we are, continues to go on. Uh, typical neuropsychology will say that we're robots and that our memories, personalities, are just circuitry or electricity moving through our body. Now, when we die, that ceases to exist, just like a TV ceases to exist. But I think there uh, so, are just way too many of those stories about little children saying the weirdest stuff. And then, you know, uh, I, I take them back to a story, I think... This young man was in England or, or in Europe somewhere, and he was—he kept telling his parents that he was a fighter pilot and that he had been shot down. And they ended up going to a reunion of fighter pilots, and these were much older men. And at least from the story I read, this kid was calling them out. I mean, he was calling them out by name. He seemed to know who they were. And you yeah. have so many of those stories where children, and they, don't, they do say the darndest things, and some of it's just really, really scary stuff, but— how much of that do you, I mean, do you discount uh, what you hear from a child or do you give it the full workup like you would with an adult? I, I think you do. I, I don't think you would discount that because, you know, I, I think there's less ability to fake or be a fraud from a kid to some degree. I mean, how is he supposed to know all this information? I think I'm familiar with the case you're talking about. Yeah, that would be how scary to me, right? Would that, I would scare the, yeah. that would scare me pretty good if my kid came up and started telling me that and then started producing facts. That would would yeah. worry me a bit. Exactly, you know. It's but I think the important thing to do is is to again just document it and, and see where it goes. You know, if a kid comes up and says, "Hey, I was a fighter pilot," like that story we're talking about, right. he just went up to his parents and said, "Hey, I was a fire pilot," and they went, "Oh yeah, whatever, just do whatever," um, and they didn't really look into it or research <laughs> it or call these experts to talk about it, they wouldn't have gone as far as they did. How now many... I think if you put talk to that kid nowadays, I don't think he remembers oh, no. anything happened then. Yeah. So that sort of follows that course of when we're young, there is still some of these fragments there, but it gradually goes away, and then, you know, you don't remember it. So, Yeah, how know, many million kids had, had gone into their dad and said, hey, dad, I'm this, hey, dad, I'm that, and his dad just kind of gives him a brain duster and pushes him back outside, and, and, that's, yeah, and mean, that's the end of it. That's just you know, for the past whatever hundred years, that's right. just what we did as a society. For sure. You know, you never really fed into it. Um, and, you know, is that right or wrong? I don't know. But, you know, if, if you break down a lot of these cases and they have a whole ac- academic department at the University of Virginia doing this, it starts to get a little bit more weight behind it. And the more weight you have behind it, the more people come forward, the more people come forward, the weight gets, you know what I'm saying, how that whole thing works. Right, absolutely. But, it all starts with consciousness. I mean, if it's external or it, it somehow is doesn't end when we end, then the incarnation is. And if that's the case, then, you know, I mean, you throw some religious stuff in there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, if at some point you don't get reincarnated and you become a higher being or whatever the, I can't remember what 
they believe happens when you've sort of perfected life. (laughs) (laughs) You know, you don't get reincarnated. You go up to a higher level of consciousness or whatever. So, So that's sort of how it works. There's some flaws with it, right? You know, there's more people now than there ever was in the world. So when does a soul get created? When right. does consciousness get created? You know, back thousands of years, there was only a million people alive. Now there's billions. Does that mean when are souls created? How, you know, all this stuff really, there's questions to it. But, you know, I, you don't, no one has all these answers. At least I don't think they do. Most of the stuff when it comes to the paranormal is, you know, we think of ghosts as being these frightening, terrifying things. But um, if you look at some of the research out there, the long-term effects are actually it, it improves person's um, quality of life by having a ghostly encounter. Huh. Uh, it actually provides some sort of comfort of an afterlife or uh, long-term, maybe not short-term if someone pops up in front of you, but long-term it's, it's more helpful and beneficial and people are more uh, hopeful optimistic about the future and death. I think it definitely determines on who pops up, right? If if I'm the guy with his wife popping up, that's one thing. You know, if uh, some black-eyed children pop up, that's something completely different. Exactly, yeah. It's it's it's, it's definitely <laughs> different. There's terrifying and then Absolutely. comforting. I see a lot of these shows where everything is demonic, right? Everything is, you're telling this homeowner you have a demon in your house. That that mm-hmm. Those kind of things when they're just constantly, it's always the first thing out of your mouth. I get skeptical of that. Yep, I feel something weird in here. It must be demonic. And that does more harm than good, I think, to the homeowner or the person having the experience. Yeah, and, and you don't know who you're dealing with. Um, you, you have a snapshot of it. So, you know, a lot of people think they can find, you know, hey, this person has delusions or schizophrenia or something. Mm-hmm. They stop taking their medications and they're in the early parts of psychosis where they're functioning, but they just get a lot of paranoia and delusions. You know, they might have delusions that, you know, there's a demon in their house. And their psychiatrist is like, well, you got to start taking your meds or it's going to get worse. And then they go, no, I really think there's a demon in my house. And they call a team. The team comes there, a demonologist with a certificate from some random online school comes in. <laughs> right. there's, a, there's a demon in there. So now this person goes, hey, I just had a demonologist tell me there's a demon in here. So, you know, screw the psychiatrist with his medical degrees and expertise. I'm going to stop taking my meds because I know there's actually a demon in here. And the next thing you know, they decompensate, they lose their job, they're homeless, and all because some guy with right, a, exactly. a $3 certificate from an online school says there's a demon in there. And that's why I really thought having you on was really interesting, because in a lot of cases, mental illness, or it masks for, you know, you could have something that would seem, I'm having these experiences, but maybe you are having some type of mental issue that could be otherwise corrected. And so it masks itself very well. It's hard to tell. If somebody's ranting and raving about seeing ghosts or having ghosts in their home, they might really be seeing things as some schizophrenic episode, right? Yeah. There's ways to do it. You know, even if if the demonologist feels there is something in the house, Mm -hmm. you don't tell a person there's a demon in there. (laughs) Let's say 100% this is what's going on and there's no way to discount it or whatever. Right. You could say something like, it seems like there's a lot of distress happening in this house, and it just doesn't seem like a good place for you. It might be a good idea to think about going somewhere else so you feel a little bit better. And like, and then you can say something like, I don't know if it's a demon or not, because you can't prove it's a demon. Right. Um, you know, you could sort of say, why don't you do this or that? But, you know, I, I, 
get terrified because you're putting a lot of it's, it's a lot of to go into somebody's home and do these things it seems i mean on tv it's cool it's fun and everything but you got to understand that there's a lot of liability associated with that like i just gave an example of the person you know they could stop taking their meds lose their their job their family could leave them they could be homeless and you ruin their whole life right <laughs> By just because you want to look cool and be an expert and say there's blankety blank in here. Let me ask you, we just uh, we have a couple minutes left. Where do you see the field of the paranormal investigation or you know ghost hunting? How do you see that evolving over the next decade? Well, um, you know, I'm not a big fan of technology, but I do see it probably going more that direction. This idea that uh, paranormal experiences are not repeatable, they're erratic, we don't really know when they're coming on. So it's hard for us to sort of study them. But I think as technology increases, I mean, nowadays we're walking around able to tell our heart rates, and I don't know what these Apple Watches really tell you, but... They can tell your future. They can tell everything. Yeah, but you could track your sleep schedule. For sure. You could do all this stuff nowadays. You know, I think in the future we're going to have technology available to us that we can actually have somebody hooked up to a machine when they have a paranormal, genuine paranormal experience. You know, nowadays there is um, wireless EEG headsets that are semi-affordable, like five, $600. So essentially, if you walk around all day and all night with these headsets, eventually, you're, if you have a lot of experiences, you might have one. So then you can get, you know, a person's EEG when they're on, when they have a paranormal experience. You know, it might get to the point where you can get all sorts of data 24-7 from somebody. Uh, and that mm-hmm. helps determine a little bit more information about what's going on internally, uh, externally. You can get data from the environment. You can track magnetic fields. You can, you know what I'm saying? I I think in the future, you're going to be sort of a walking computer able to find out everything that's going on internally and externally around you. And I think that opens the door to maybe, you know, what happens when you're having a paranormal experience. And I think that'll help us determine a little bit more about consciousness and things like that. So why why I hate technology and I hate being bombarded with radio frequencies and electromagnetic fields, I think in the future, that's probably going to be where a lot of the research goes. So this is my last question for you, Brandon. And I know, well, I don't know, maybe you already had another experience. You say you have not ever had a paranormal experience to date. So you're still getting out there. Are you still going out to locations and, and researching and maybe efforting for that first experience? Yeah, I, um I go out as much as I can. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really do. I, um, you know, sometimes teams in the Ohio area will invite me out, and I really appreciate that. I always like learning about kind of what people are doing out there. Um, and uh, you know, if I go, if I go speak at some conventions, which are very fun to go to, most of them have some sort of a ghost hunt associated with it. So I try to go to those. Um, so I'm out there. I'm doing things. I'm visiting locations. A lot of who I am is more on the research side of stuff, mm-hmm. the reading and writing part of things. But the the experience you get from actually being in locations is sort of the genesis of the reading and writing. So um, if anyone uh, wants to invite me places, I'm always willing to go. Most of the, I mean, you'll talk, like I, I said, I went to somebody's house that I knew who was having problems. So I get out, I do the things I got to do and, you know, I'm not part of a team. I'm not out every weekend. You know, I'm not doing it like that, but I'm out there. Well, if I had a wish list, uh, I would, again, I'm, I'm from Northeast Ohio, but I uh, lived in Columbus for about 20 years. 
And when I was growing up, the, the place that really impacted me the most it was with my aunt's home. It was a double, and it was there were multiple, and I was probably 13, 14, 15 during those summers. There were multiple paranormal experiences that I had at that age that really kind of shaped my life in a lot of ways. And I would love to be able to go back to that place now, 30 years later, yeah. and, and yeah. to be able to sit there and see, am I having the same response now that I had then? Or was it that yeah. first response? Because especially, you have one bad response. And now your brain is, you know, cluttered. And now you every instance that you have in that property is now a bad response. You know, suddenly you'll have more and more and more. They build on themselves. That's what I think anyway. You know, that first yeah. that first experience was so traumatic that now anytime I go into that area, I am primed for another experience. So yeah. I would love to go back there. It's one of my bucket list things to kind of knock on the door. Hey, I know you don't know me, uh, um, but I'm going to want to come and sit in your house overnight if that's okay. <laughs> I don't know yeah, if they'll do that. Know. May not go over well. Probably not. Um, <laughs> I don't think it would. Well, thank you so much, Brandon, for joining the show today. I, I really appreciate it, uh, providing us kind of a different, unique view on the topic. Uh, I, I sure. personally think it's been a great conversation. I'd love to have you on again and talk a little bit more um, sure. another time. So with the book, uh, again, Go Studies, New Perspectives of the Origins of Paranormal Experiences, where can people purchase that? Uh, the easiest thing to do is go on uh, Amazon. Okay. Uh, it's, it's right there, Kindle, book. Um, you could also get an audio version of it, too. Uh, some Barnes & Noble still have it out there. The book's been out for almost three years now. Awesome. So you can check your local Barnes & Noble if you want to pick it up right away. Make sure it's there. Uh, if not, Amazon is your way to go. It's on all the, gosh, all the formats. I don't know what they are. Google Reads and any way Whatever that you that. get your media <laughs> formats, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Are, are you are doing any, you said you had done some um, appearances. Are you doing any appearances soon? Uh, actually, I did probably my last one for the year uh, a couple of days ago. Uh, so I'm not doing any more. Did Usually, your Halloween convention? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I did my... It's that time of know, year. I'll, I'll, yeah, it usually slows up here, and then towards the summer it'll get back going but i don't have anything planned for next year i'm trying to get back into the writing things um, mm -hmm. last two summers i've been more out doing things and i got to get back to writing which is more helpful for me but uh if you go to my website hauntedtheories.com it's got all my appearances on there um some of my blogs my thoughts and things like that so and you can follow me at facebook on ha at haunted theories or twitter at haunted theories uh, and that's got, I always promote stuff that I do or where I go. Well, um, again, thank you very much, Brandon. I really appreciate that. And hopefully you can come back and uh, join the Prove Me Wrong podcast again, and we can talk a little bit more. I appreciate it. Yep. Thank you. Thank you. So that was Brandon Masulo, kind of giving some different alternative uh, theories in terms of environmental factors, things that could be affecting you personally, ways that your body maybe interprets different energy levels, EMF fields, and you may interpret that as a paranormal, a ghost. And in reality, it may just be your body being extra sensitive to an electromagnetic field, which is a natural occurrence, a natural phenomena. It is something that could happen, something to think about. What do you think? Do you think that ghosts are real? I've seen them. Uh, I've seen a full body apparition. I personally have not. And that's it. Or is there room that 
yeah, sometimes maybe there are other environmental factors, things that I'm not thinking of. No, those noises that I'm hearing don't necessarily have to be paranormal. They could be completely natural. Could be the fridge, could be the pipes, could be that old boiler in the corner. And then maybe this is just the way my body interacts with these external stimulus. I know my wife, Christina, I know she can smell 300 times better than I can. I'll make something in the, in the kitchen. Four hours later, she'll come home and she'll say, did you make tuna fish? It's ridiculous how well she is attuned to different environmental factors. It could be just as simple as that. Again, your feedback is welcome. What are you thinking? What are your comments on the, the topic? Did you like this podcast? Would you like to hear more of this type of uh, guest? We can certainly do that for you. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at provemewrongcast at gmail.com. You can also message us on Facebook. Our Facebook name is simply Prove Me Wrong. We're also on Instagram, Prove Me Wrong as well. And if you just want to hear the podcast, you want to hear the content, you can find us really anywhere that you locate podcasts, either on the podcast app, iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, any of those formats, you can find us. And before we go, I do want to say that this episode of the Prove Me Wrong podcast is brought to you by Zendo Zones Citronella Burners from J.T. Eaton. They're shaped like fearless little tiki gods. So let Surf and Stan, Hawaiian Howie, and Luau Lily bring the islands to your backyard with Zendo Zones Citronella Burners. Zendo Zones uses natural 3% citronella candles and incense cones, perfect for patios, decks, backyards, campsites, poolside, and more. You can enjoy the outdoors again. They are available on Amazon and at Ace Hardware and collect them all today. For, again, for Brandon Masulo, my guest today on the phone, this is Pete Lieb with the Prove Me Wrong podcast, and we'll talk to you again soon.